I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the gospel of John. John chapter 11. We are going to study John 11. We're going to study it this morning and we're going to study it next week and finish John 11 next week. And then um, we will have a, a special time for our Christmas service on the 18th. So we're going to finish out John 11. We're going to tie it in a couple times to Christmas. Um, but what I want to do this morning is I want, I want to go back to where we were two weeks ago. Last week we spent our time in Psalm 100. It was a great time in, in Psalm 100, uh, giving thanks to God for who he is and what he has done. But I want us to go back two weeks ago to where we were in this account. This account of Lazarus being raised from the dead is probably one of the most important accounts that we've come across as a church. I think two weeks ago, that sermon was one of the most important sermons that I think I've preached as a pastor, dealing with what it means to be loved by God and how we can understand his love for us and feel his love for us in the midst of suffering and pain, that those two are not at odds. And ultimately, that God's glory is what we long to see and seeing Jesus clearly for who he is. And him displaying himself to us is the greatest demonstration of his love. So we, we pleaded with our souls, do not measure the love of God for you by how much health or wealth or comfort he brings into your life. If that is the measure of God's love, then God hated the Apostle Paul. God hated Job. But obviously we know that he loved Job. He loved Paul. He loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So we must measure God's love for us by how much of himself he reveals to us. That is the measure of God's love. How much of himself he gives to you to know and to enjoy. And even as we celebrate Christmas, that is the glory of Christmas. That God is stepping into human history so that we would know and enjoy him all the more. So this morning we will continue our study in this amazing section of scripture. We're going to see a big chunk. There's a lot that goes on. We'll see if we can get through it all from verse 17 through 46. I want to read these verses and then I want to pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Let's start in verse 17. After everything transpired with Martha and Mary asking Jesus, uh, telling him, um, the one whom you love is sick. Jesus stays. Lazarus dies. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God. He who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
And the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her when they saw that Mary had gotten up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these words... He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. So Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Father, these verses are powerful. Uh, We need your spirit to see what these verses are teaching. He wrote these words for a reason, and I pray that we would see that reason this morning. Um, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. I pray that we would be satisfied this morning by meditating upon your word. I pray that we would come to believe you are the resurrection and the life. And that we would not question your love for us even in the midst of pain. That is a supernatural thing that we are asking. But it is an easy thing for you to do. So come move in our service, move in our hearts. Move us to see the glory of Jesus on display now. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus will come across three people, uh, one of them is really a people group, but three people in this account. He's going to meet Mary and talk with her. He's going to meet Martha, talk with her. He's going to meet the mourners and talk with them. He sees Martha first, and we're not really surprised by that because Martha's always the busy one, so she's going to leave first to go see Jesus. Mary will come second, and the mourners will come third. But we'll take those three people and people groups as our outline this morning. So we'll start with Martha, and what I want you to see is the way that Jesus interacts with each person. Martha's going to have a specific thing to say. Mary's going to have a specific thing to say. The mourners are going to have a specific thing to say. And Jesus is going to respond to them differently um, with a common thread throughout. So let's start with Martha. Martha in verses 17 through 27, we meet Martha and Jesus is going to say some amazing things to her. So verse 17, Jesus came. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days There was a belief, um, probably not as far as back in that day, but close to that day, that 
Um, it, it was a Jewish custom that said that when you died, your spirit would hover over your body for three days. And then after three days, if God did not see fit to raise you from the dead, your spirit would need to go into your body to be raised from the dead. So if God did not see fit to raise you from the dead, after three days, you would, the spirit would depart to be with God in heaven or to be punished by God in hell forever. So there's maybe a cultural custom uh, that Jesus is, is waiting four days to come um, so that Lazarus would have been dead for four days and that custom would be removed. There would be no spirit lingering. Obviously, we know that that doesn't happen. Um, but the people around Lazarus would believe he is truly dead. He's not going to be raised. We were waiting. Maybe he's going to be raised. He's not going to be raised. And he goes to Bethany, the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus near Jerusalem. Even today, the the Muslim name for it is El Lazaria. It means the, the city of Lazarus. It means the place where Lazarus uh, lived and ultimately was raised from the dead. And so Jesus comes, verse 18, to Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. And many of the Jews, verse 19, came to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brothers. Now, the word Jews in the Gospel of John almost always means hostile Jews, religious leaders that are hostile to Jesus or Jewish people that are hostile to Jesus. Um, I don't know if we can say that emphatically here or only here. I think that this, since they are coming to console Jesus, there are some that are to console Mary and Martha. There are some of these Jews that are for sure hostile. We're going to see that they're hostile to Jesus. But there are also some of these Jews that are not hostile. There are some Jews that probably loved uh, Jesus. And they're coming to console. They're coming to mourn. A funeral service in Jewish customs lasts a week. So funeral service itself lasted seven days, and you would hire professional mourners to come and to be a part of that, to weep and to wail with you. And the entire period of mourning lasted an entire month. So one funeral service was seven days. The entire period of mourning in Jewish custom lasted 30 days. And even if you were a poor family, in a Jewish custom, it was expected that you would hire at least two flute players to come and to um, play at the funeral. And at least one professional wailing woman to come and to wail and to weep alongside of you. Um, Martha and Mary apparently are well known and well off because they have many Jews coming to console and to mourn with them. So verse 20, Martha comes out. She hears that Jesus is coming. So she leaves to meet him. Um, we're going to see that Mary does the same thing secretively. I don't know if there is a, uh, a very profound reason why it's in secret maybe they don't want they know that some of these jews don't like jesus so maybe they don't want him to come into the house yet probably more than that it's just that they want to meet with jesus by himself he's a close friend and they want to talk with him and so she martha leaves to go and see jesus in verse 21 she says lord if you had been here my brother would not have died now, there's many ways to read that, and I think we should read that most of all with sorrow and grief. If you had been here, what we asked for you if you'd been here, and I think more than anything, there's sorrow here. We lost our brother because he didn't come. You could have done something. But at the same time, I do think that there might be an aspect of reproof in Martha's words, almost an aspect of, why didn't you do what we wanted you to do? We asked for you. You waited. You could have come. You could have spared his life. And I think if you read it that way, I think that's maybe why she says, verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Almost like 
She's saying what she's honestly feeling, and then she knows that it kind of sounds bad, so she says something a little bit more orthodox. Um, I I, want to make sure that I'm not just uh, saying something straight out of my heart that, that sounds wrong, that is reproving Jesus the Christ. So she says an amazingly rich theological statement. Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And I think if Jesus would have said, can I raise your brother from the dead? She would have said, yes, I know that if you ask of it, God will give it to you. But I want to submit to you, and it's even what we saw with Zacharias in Family Bible Hour. There are times where our theology does not live itself out. It doesn't become practical. We all struggle with this. So she's saying very true words. But I would call them spiritual platitudes. These are, these are those words that are not untrue, um, but they're not going to make it in the moment. They're not going to connect to reality in the moment, and we're going to see that. It's not going to hit home. She's going to ultimately be told by Jesus, remove the stone, and she's going to say, no, he, he, he's going to be stinking right now. We don't want to do that. Instead of saying, whatever you ask of God, God will do it for you. So you know those spiritual platitudes, right? You're going to get a bunch of them on your Christmas cards. And they're all those Hallmarkian phrases that, um, you know, the, the, the bread of life never goes stale or something like that. That's, that's true, but, but kind of silly and kind of pithy. And, and ultimately, even though it's true, it's, it's, a, it's a platitude. It doesn't really hit home in such a way that um, it makes us live differently. So how does Jesus respond? Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How does Jesus respond to her? Verse 23, he responds with truth. He responds with truth, profound truth. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that he's going to rise again later. And what Jesus is saying, he's rising again today. And this day is a preview of that day when everybody will rise from the dead. But this day is a preview of that glory. This day is of glory being seen. And so he says to her, verse 25, the fifth great I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who believes in me will will never die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is the fifth great I am statement we already came across. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. We still have I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. And notice what Jesus is saying is, I am enough for you. I'm enough for Lazarus and I'm enough for you. Look at how he splits this. I'm enough for Lazarus. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm enough for Lazarus. He is dead. But Jesus says, he who believes in me or he who believes in me will live even if he dies. So Lazarus is that person. He has died, but he believed in me, so he will live. And you, Martha, you need me too. Just as much as Lazarus needs me, you need me too. He who believes in me, who lives, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So whoever has died but believed in me, like Lazarus, they will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I'm everything that you need, Martha. I'm everything that you need, Lazarus. This goes back all the way to chapter 5, verses 24 through 29, where Jesus says, believers will never taste death. Um, they will pass from this life into the next life uh, with eternal life. They will never die. They, they never ultimately die. They close their eyes and sleep in this life and they move on to the next. And so he asks her, do you believe this? That's a very pregnant question. 
She says, yes, I believe that Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. And I believe that you are God. I believe you're the son of God. But I think, as we're going to see in a few verses, Jesus is asking her much more than that. It's not just do you believe that Lazarus will rise on the last day. It's do you believe that he will rise today? Do you believe that I am more than enough to meet all of your needs? Do you believe that I love you? Do you believe that you will see my glory on display even in these moments? She responds and she says, yes, Lord, I have believed, verse 27, that you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're equal to God and you came into the world. You are the promised one. These are powerful words. And I think that this confession that she makes shows us again, like we saw with Zacharias, you can have genuine faith, love Jesus, walk uprightly and blamelessly before him and still struggle with doubts. You can. That's why Jude 22 says we should have mercy on those who doubt. We should be merciful. We shouldn't be saying, come on, get your act together. And so Jesus will have mercy. But Jesus responds to Martha with truth. How is he going to respond to Mary? Verse 28, this is Mary, verses 28 through 35. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here, he's calling for you. Again, I don't know if that's secret because they want to keep him safe from the Jews, possibly uh, the hostile ones that wanted him dead. Um, Remember, Thomas said, if we go back to Jerusalem, we're going to die. So maybe that's part of it. Probably more than that, they just want to interact with Jesus, an intimate friend that they want to see before all of the crowds get to him. So, verse 29, when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. And Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. So they're going to follow her to weep with her, to mourn with her, to be her friends and family and professional mourners with her. Therefore, verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was, She saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice those are the exact same words that Martha said in verse 21. Identical, word for word. How many times do you think they said this to one another in the house? Just in utter disbelief. We sent... A servant to go tell Jesus, we know that Jesus loves Lazarus. And we told him that Jesus, told Jesus, Lazarus is sick. But he didn't come. And, and as they're trying to process and grieve over the loss of their brother, they just keep going back here. If he had come, he wouldn't have died. And they keep saying the exact same thing. Now, how is Jesus going to respond to that? Remember, Martha said identically the exact same thing. How is Jesus going to respond? He responded to Martha with truth. And he's going to respond to Mary with emotions, with great emotion. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. He responds with great emotion. Now, there are two phrases of great emotion. Deeply moved in in spirit and troubled and wept. So we got verse 33 and 35. Now, most people read into those phrases the emotions that they think would be appropriate for grieving the loss of a loved one. 
Most people place deeply moved in spirit and troubled over grief and and empathy and sorrow. Now, I don't think that's not what Jesus is feeling. I think that he feels that specifically in verse 35. But this is where we need to interpret the Bible grammatically, right? Words have meaning. What do these words mean? Deeply moved. You will never find the word deeply moved. It's It's one word in the Greek. You will never find that word deeply moved ever used in a compassionate setting, ever. It's always used in rebuking situations. It's used, um, it's translated often as sternly or indignantly, like Mark chapter 14, verse 4, when um, the woman pours out the alabaster vial of perfume. Uh, That's Mary, and she pours out the alabaster vial, and people indignantly respond to her saying, she should have sold this and given money to the poor. This perfume has been wasted. Um, technically, the Greek is, is annoyingly specific, and the way that this word is used, it's used in, in a voicing that says it's not passive. It's not he was deeply moved. That's actually not the best way to translate it. It's he bristled. It's an active word. He, he is bristling against something. So this word, deeply moved, and it's what we would call in theology semantic domain, right? That's the usage of the word, how it can be used in different settings. It can mean angry. It can mean indignant. It can mean feeling inner turmoil. It's deep emotion, but it's always an agitated, indignant emotion. And then you add to that the word troubled. Troubled um, in other situations in Greek is used uh, to, to describe the snorting of a horse, a horse snorting and his nostrils flaring. It's used in the Bible, uh, translated in John 5 as stirred up. The waters in the pools of Bethesda are stirred up. It's also translated um, using the words shudder or shaken. So he's deeply moved and he's shaken to the core. I believe this is the closest experience that gets to the Garden of Gethsemane that we see Jesus involved in. He is deeply moved, unlike anything he's ever experienced, except for when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and when he goes and dies on the cross. To literally uh, translate this phrase, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, you would translate it this way. He gave way to such distress of spirit as made his body tremble. So again, most people would just read into whatever emotions they want. I don't think we're allowed to, and and don't take my word for it. Take D.A. Carson's words for it. He says this, It is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. It's not just that he's sad. There's something else going on here. So what is it? Let me give you some options. Most people would say that he is sad that a friend has died. Now, I think that that's true. I don't think that's untrue. I personally don't believe that deeply moved and troubled to have anything to do with him being sad that Lazarus died. I think weeping does in verse 35. But he knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. So I think that's least on his list. Sorrow over the sorrow and grief that his friends are experiencing over the death of a loved one. That one, yes, definitely. I think verse 35 shows that. He's sorrowful because his friends are sorrowful. They lost their brother. Death has come and taken away their close friend. And I think he weeps because of that. I think he weeps because of that. 
Some say that he is indignant and emotional because he's staring death in the face. He sees Satan's realm at work. He sees sin at work. He sees sickness at work. Yes, I believe so. Some say he's indignant and emotional over the realization of his own impending death. It's coming quickly. As he stares death in the face, he realizes it's only about six to seven weeks away that he's going to die. But even worse than Lazarus, he will be physically killed, but more than that, spiritually separated from the Father. I think we have to add a fifth possibility, and that is his indignation. He's emotionally moved and indignant over blatant unbelief that he sees. And again, I'm going to ask D.A. Carson to help us here. He says this, Some think that Jesus is moved by grief and is consequently angry with sin, sickness, and death in the fallen world that wrecks so much havoc and generates so much sorrow. Others think that the anger is directed at unbelief itself. The men and women before him were grieving like pagans who had no hope. Profound grief at such bereavement is natural enough, but grief that degenerates into despair and pours out its losses if there were no resurrection is an implicit denial of the resurrection. And so he says, perhaps these two interpretations are not irreconcilable. With most of us, to be angry with someone is inconsistent with being loving and empathetic toward that person. But with Jesus, as it is with his father, the antithesis breaks down. So Jesus can pronounce woes on Jerusalem while weeping that they did not believe in him. He can curse somebody while pleading with them to repent. Um, He has wrath for sinners and he loves sinners. So all of these things can come together. You can be angry and indignant and you can also be weeping with compassion. I believe that's the case in these deeply moved and weak. I think we get a whole spectrum of emotion. He's indignant and angry because of unbelief. And we're going to see that even more so. But he is absolutely compassionately weeping with those who weep. Some think that it's just the effects of sin. Just I'm, I'm sad at the effects of sin, that sin caused death. And I think D.A. Carson says very well, and this is the last quote from him. If sin, illness, and death, all devastating features of this fallen world, excite Jesus' wrath, then it's hard to see how unbelief would be excluded. So I think that he is deeply moved and troubled. If you want to be black and white here, which I don't think we should be, but if you want to just for help, I think deeply moved and troubled are anger and indignation over unbelief. And I think the weeping that we will see in verse 35, even the word wept, it's different than the word for crying and weeping that we've seen by the Jewish mourners. It's not wailing, it's tears streaming down your face. It's it's that moment where you cannot control your emotions anymore and, and you're sad and you're crying and you're weeping and they're just streaming down. I think that is given more towards the compassion and the empathetic nature of our great high priest. But notice, deeply moved, troubled, and weeping all have a lack of an expressed object. So I think while I'm giving you all this information, I think it would be good to take one step back and say, tears can come from a lot of places. And we don't know, we can't pinpoint exactly. We know semantically, we know by the word, deeply moved and troubled, Jesus is angry about something. And typically, people don't put an angry Jesus into the raising of Lazarus. But he is. And he's also weeping with those who weep and mourning with those who mourn. What can we say about all of this? I think the key here is this. Our Savior is not stoic. He's not a stoic, impassable God. 
And we shouldn't be either. You know those guys that are, I'm a man and real men don't cry. Yeah, they do. Jesus is more of a real man than you'll ever be, and he cried. So we shouldn't be impassable or stoic. We should be compassionate. In fact, the, compa- the impassable Stoics are the Greek gods. The Greek gods were described by the Greek people as a word that you will know. Apatheos. Apathetic. The, the Greek gods were defined by that word. They're apatheos. They are apathetic. Um, it, it, that, that word apatheos is pathos. With the alpha privative, like an atheist means they deny that God exists. And a pathos, apathetic, means that you have no feelings. The Greek gods have no feelings, no ability to feel pain, no ability to feel emotion, no ability to care. And that is absolutely pagan deities invented by Satan, but that's not our God. Jesus is emotional. We don't worship a stone that doesn't feel anything. We worship a Savior who weeps. And, by the way, as we weep too, he weeps with us. And there is coming a day, Revelation 21, verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So he responds with great emotion to Mary's comments and Mary's actions, even though she's saying the exact same thing that Martha said. He responds with truth because truth is what Martha needs. He responds with emotion because emotion is what Mary needs. Now he will respond to the mourners. Verse 36. So as the Jews saw that Jesus was weeping, they were saying, see how he loved him. Now this is right and wrong. This is a right and wrong understanding of what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. Jesus did love Lazarus for sure. But his weeping isn't necessarily coming from the place in his heart that loved Lazarus and was sad for losing him. They see that Jesus is emotional, and they just think he's emotional because he lost a friend. Jesus is so much more, there's so many more reasons that he's emotional. They're also confused. So some say, see how he loved him. But verse 37, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So they're confused as to why Jesus didn't heal Lazarus since he knew him. He loved him. If Jesus healed strangers like the man born blind in John chapter 9, he just, I don't know you from Adam, but let me heal you. Boom, done. Why wouldn't he heal one of his closest friends? So the, the Jewish mourners, and I think a little bit of Mary and a little bit of Martha as well. We can throw them all together because they're all mourning. They're struggling with. How is this love? Which takes us all the way back to the sermon two weeks ago. And I believe that's why Jesus is going to respond. Verse 38. So, or therefore, some of your translations might say, therefore, because he hears that the people say, oh, he loved him, but he didn't heal him. Couldn't he have healed him? What's going on? They're either saying he's not powerful enough or he's not loving enough. So Jesus was deeply moved. He's deeply moved. This is the unbelief. He's seen unbelief of a person whose faith doesn't rest on who Jesus is and what he has revealed about himself, but rather strictly on his power. Oh, he's either powerless to help or he doesn't love. This is unbelief that is devastating to Jesus, so much so that he starts to become visibly agitated. I don't think he's weeping and moved here by death at all at this point. It's disbelief that he is moved by. 
He's deeply moved over the unbelief and questioning of his own love for Lazarus. Now, we have to stop here because a lot of people would say, okay, I've never heard that Jesus was angry or indignant in the Lazarus story. And frankly, I don't like that because Jesus is compassionate. We just had a family member die. And why isn't he taking care of the family? This is a weird Jesus, and I don't like this Jesus. First of all, we need to bow the knee to what the Bible says. The Bible says he is compassionately empathetic and mourning and weeping with those who weep. Yes, but there's also indignation and and anger. But second, again, we, we tend to think anger is at odds with love. And this is where I just want to help us out. For Jesus to be angry at their unbelief is love. It is love to be angry at unbelief. Why? Because they're doubting. They're doubting his love. They're doubting his power. They're doubting who he is. Is the very thing that's blinding them from seeing the glory of God on display. And from receiving his love. So if if Jesus can remove the doubt. If he can remove the thing that's blinding them from seeing his love. Then they will be able to see his love and his glory. So what's the, what's the alternative? To be happy that they're doubting him? No, he has to be angry at the sin of unbelief. And he can do that in a compassionate way, and I don't think that these are at odds. For him to be angry here and indignant is absolutely loving because he's going to be targeting the very thing that's, that's impeding their vision of his glory. And that's what he wants everyone to see. That's what he wants you to see this morning. He wants you to see his glory on display. And so he wants to remove unbelief, open blind eyes. How is he going to do that? He does that not only with truth and with emotions, but here as he responds to the mourners, and that includes Mary and Martha, to everyone who's there, he's going to respond with powerful action. So to Martha, it's truth. To Mary, it's emotion. And to everyone, it's powerful action on display. Now, Verse 39, he's going to say to Martha, remove the stone. He's already raised two people from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter, who was 12 years old, and he raised the widow's son, the widow who was at Nain. And even though Martha knows that, and again, even though Martha had said in verse 22, whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. When Jesus says, remove the stone, Martha says, no, Lord, by now this time there will be a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus, that doesn't work. Now, if I'm Jesus, which again, you're always happy that I'm not. But if I'm Jesus, I would ask, wait, what did you just say just a couple minutes ago? You said, I can ask God to do anything and, and he'll give it to me. Why, why don't you see that I'm about to ask God to give me Lazarus back? Her, her theology, back in verse 22, is not functioning fully in her life at this moment. But notice Jesus, so tender. Again, if if you have a picture now of Jesus in your mind as angry, frustrated, um, don't just have that. Yes, hopefully you have more of that than what you once thought, but such compassion. Jesus is going to say, didn't I say to you that if you believe you'll see the glory of God? Notice he does not say when she says, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. He doesn't say, well, I was going to do something amazing for you, but now because of your unbelief, I'm not. I'm sorry. 
I had a great idea and you ruined it. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to show you the glory of God. I'm going to show you something. Now, very interestingly, verse 40, did I not say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? If you go back to verse 4, that's what Jesus said. This sickness is not an end to death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. But that's said to whom? That's said to the disciples, not to Martha. But he says, didn't I say that to you? So when did he say that? He said that in verse 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe what? Do you believe that you're going to see the glory of God on display? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. So verse 40 and verse 26 are connected, even though verse 4 is identical to verse 40. It's verse 40 and verse 26, 25 and 26 that are connected. So he's saying, I love you and I want to reveal to you the glory of God by raising Lazarus from the dead in a powerful way. I want you to see that. Do you believe that? So, verse 41, they remove the stone and Jesus raises his eyes and he connects the power that he's going to work to the Father. He wants everybody to know this is God working, this is God at work. He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. This prayer is not artificial. This prayer is Jesus in the kenosis, even what we celebrate at Christmas, where Jesus gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He gave up independently using the divine attributes that he had. This is why the temptation of turning rocks into bread is a temptation at all because satan is asking jesus step outside of the limitations of fallen humanity that you took for yourself step outside those limitations if you're hungry just make bread now jesus could have done that but he wanted to remain inside of what we would call the kenosis the emptying of himself the limitations that he put and so he says father can i do that and the father says no and he says i can't do it even though he has the power to do it he refuses to do it We see the kenosis all throughout this Lazarus passage. Here, he's praying, saying, Father, can I work this miracle through your power? He's not just going to do it on his own. He needs the Father to do it because you and I can't just do these things on our own. We need the power of God to do these things. I mean, even before this, Jesus knows, if you go all the way back to verse 4, he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he's already been told by the Father that's going to happen. And as he comes to Bethany... He asks, where is the tomb? Where was he laid? Why does he ask that? Because he doesn't know. So the father has revealed to Jesus, you're going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. He goes, awesome. And he, and he goes to Bethany. Okay, I'm going to raise a dead man. Where is he? Fully God, fully man, 100% at the exact same time. And so his kenosis, the self-emptying, um, is on full display, 100% God, 100% man. So he asks the Father, and he says, I want to do this for the people that are around me so that they may believe. That's the whole point, that you are the one working through me, that you are the one who sent me, that you are the one that they should trust. Verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Literally in the Greek, it's the same two words. He yelled in a loud voice with a loud voice. 
He yelled in a loud voice with a loud voice. And what does he yell? Lazarus, come forth. Notice he has to define Lazarus. Because if he just said, come forth, every single dead person in the entire universe would have been raised from the dead. So he says, Lazarus, just you. Everybody else at one other time, but, but just you, Lazarus. And he raises a dead man. Verse 43, he cries out, come forth. And verse 44, there could not be a more fascinating narrative, a more fascinating display of the power of God. And there could not be a more nonchalant way to say it. The man who had died came forth. That's it. A dead man obeyed God. And in this powerful display of God's glory, this is the seventh sign. We, we see seven signs in the Gospel of John that display the glory of God. This is the seventh one. We saw turning the water into wine in John 2. We saw healing the royal official son in John 4. We saw healing the paralytic at Bethesda in John 5, feeding the 5,000 in John 6, walking on water in John 6, healing the man blind from birth in John 9, and here raising a man from the dead in John 11. So he says, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. I just can't wait to see what this looked like in heaven. What did this look like? Here comes Lazarus. The tomb's opened. Everybody's peering in, wondering what's going to take place. And this seems to say Lazarus can't walk because he's bound. So I don't know if he's hopping out of the tomb, but it says that he's bound hand and foot with wrappings. And then it says that there's a cloth over his face, which was customary in um, Jewish burials. There's a cloth over his face. And so Jesus says, unbind him or else I'm going to have to do this again. Get him out of here. Let him go. What must Lazarus have looked like? Remember, Mary said he's been dead for four days. There will be a stench. There's already going to be decomposing flesh. And now he's totally restored, totally healed. It's amazing. Jesus makes statements of spiritual realities, and then he illustrates them physically. He's doing that here. Remember, he said, I am the resurrection and the life in here. I'll prove to you that physically. I'll prove I'm the resurrection because I can raise people from the dead. On another occasion in the Gospel of John, he said, I am the bread of life. And then he created a meal uh, to prove it. He said, I am the light of the world. And then he healed a blind man to prove it. How do people react to this? What do you do? Verse 45 and 46, some of the Jews believed but some went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. We're going to study their reaction in depth next week and finish out John 11. But for a time this morning, just as we conclude, how do we wrap this all? There's so much that happens here. So let's try and wrap it up in three main points. Okay? Three main conclusions. As we've seen Martha and the truth that Jesus speaks in reaction to her and Mary and the response of great emotion and the mourners and the response of great power and action. Number one, I would say with verse 21, when Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary says the exact same thing in verse 32. 
if you've ever been involved in a, a situation of pain or suffering, you've asked that question. God, where were you? Where were you? Why didn't you show up? I trust you. I know you can do this, but why didn't you show up? If you had showed up, things would have been different. As we conclude our time together in this specific section, I think that God is saying to you and to me in this service, I love you. I love you, and my love for you is not sparing you suffering or pain or even death. My greatest display of love for you is the gift of myself. It's my glory. And so even as we ask, God, where are you? God's saying, I'm, I'm with you. I'm in your midst. I'm for you. I haven't left you. I'll never forsake you. Do you see me? Do you see me for who I really am? We tend to think in the midst of pain, God, you're far away. And God's saying, I'm right with you. You just can't see me. Because you're looking for me in a different way, with different lenses. I think Jesus is beckoning us this morning to come to him, to let him reveal more of himself to us and to to not question in the midst of trials and suffering and pain and even death that somehow that's antithetical to God loving us. We've asked that question before. Where were you? But note, what happens to all of those fears, doubts, worries when Lazarus walks out of the tomb? What happens when you've been struggling? God, what are you doing? Do you even care? And then boom, Lazarus walks out. All of those worries and fear, fears and anxieties, they, they fall away. And you, I'm sure Mary and Martha at one point said, I should have trusted him. I should have trusted him. He's proven his trustworthiness time and time again. I should have trusted him. So it would be good for us to trust him this morning. Let us trust him now and not wait until later to trust him. Trust his love. Trust his care for you. Secondly, just quickly, a a dead man obeyed the word of God. A dead man obeyed a command. That's, That's impossible. Dead people can't hear, and yet a dead person heard. I think this is absolutely a picture of of our own salvation. Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and God yelled out with a loud voice, believe in me. And through his great love, we being dead in our trespasses and sins heard his voice and followed him. Notice, it's very interesting. Jesus incorporates people into almost all of his miracles. He incorporates people into this miracle. He says, remove the stone. You can do that. Uh, you can't do what I'm about to do, which is raise him from the dead. Uh, but once I raise him from the dead, you can take off his wrappings. I don't need to do that. Um, he did that, remember, when he uh, multiplied the, the fish and the loaves. I'll multiply them. You guys can't do that. But you can distribute them. Um, he's using people to do what people can do after he's done only what he can do. And I believe in a, in a very illustrative way we have the same privilege. We can roll away stones to let truth in. We can't raise people from the dead, but as we share the gospel, we can roll away the stone to let the light of God's glory into the tomb. We can unwrap the new believer, so to speak, 
There's no higher privilege this side of heaven than to be used to roll away gravestones and unwrap gravecloths when he is the one who gives the resurrection life. He uses us, but he can do the impossible, raising people from the dead, dead people hearing his voice. Finally, lastly, number three, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He was born to destroy the works of the devil. And the work here that the devil would have is the sting of death. Jesus says, I came to destroy that. I came to destroy that. The the resurrection, the destroying of, of death and the destroying of the sting of death, which is sin, the resurrection of Lazarus is meant to be a foreshadowing of our resurrection. It's meant to be a foreshadowing of when Jesus raises our bodies from the dead. But there's a huge difference between the the way that Lazarus is raised from the dead and the way that we will be raised from the dead. Lazarus is raised from the dead with a new mortal body that's going to die again. But you and I are going to be raised from the dead with immortality, never to die again. What changed? Why the difference? There's something massively important that happened between Lazarus being raised from the dead and our final resurrection. And that's Jesus dying on the cross being buried in a tomb, and then being raised from the dead himself. He raised himself, the Spirit raised him, the Father raised him to bring newness of life, to conquer sin and death once and for all. That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas, and that's why we celebrate communion. We celebrate the coming of Jesus as a baby to live our sinless, perfect life that we could never live, but we needed to live to get to God And then to die the death that we deserve, to bear the punishment. Jesus was treated by the Father as if he had lived my sinful life. So that I could be treated by the Father as if I lived Jesus' perfect life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. That's why we celebrate Christmas and that's why we celebrate communion. We come to remember the glory of God on display. So as we prepare in our hearts to partake of communion, let's not question God's love, but let's remember it all the more. Let's remember that he raised us, spiritually dead people, by the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And he has promised that he will raise us from the dead because he did that. He raised himself from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. That's why he came and that's why we celebrate Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus. How amazing he truly is. Um, Who is he? That's what everybody was saying constantly. Who is this man? The wind and the waves obey him. Who is this man who is weeping and doesn't even know where Lazarus is buried, but at the same time raises him from the dead? Who is he? God, thank you that we know he's the Lord. He's the king of glory. Come as a lowly baby so that he could live a perfect sinless life. He could die the death that we deserve. Be raised to newness of life to offer us resurrection power. God, thank you for Jesus. We want to celebrate him this morning in a manner that's worthy of all that he is for us. We pray it in his name. Amen.